Hello and welcome to PageCast, brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. My name is Lester Kivett, and with the authors and the writers in the Jonathan Ball stable, we are exploring the words and ideas that they've put down to page. Today I'm speaking to Peter Detoy, a political journalist by profession, assistant editor for investigations at News24 by title, and the author of three books for Jonathan Ball, First Enemy of the People, How Jacob Zuma Stole South Africa, co-written with Adrian Basson, the next book, Stellenbosch Mafia, and what we'll be discussing for the next while. His latest book, The ANC Billionaires, Big Capitals, Gambit, and the Rise of the Few. It's about the contentious and ambivalent, often ambivalent relationship between the African National Congress and, and capital before, during and after South Africa's transition from apartheid uh, to democracy and, and how the ANC in power may have been unprepared to deliver on the political and social freedoms and deliver on an economy that... Um, prospers in a post-Cold War world and at the same time also says true to the ANC's historical mission to deliver on the principles of the Freedom Charter. And of course, as the title of the book suggests, how the ANC's policies created an obscenely rich micro-elite with close connections to business and industry. Peter Dutoy, a pleasure to talking to you. Are you well? Lester, thanks. Yes, uh, very well. So it's been a busy news year and uh, to write a book in and amongst everything that's happening was tough, but uh, very well. Thanks. I don't know how you do it, but I, I want to start by saying um, that this book for me is is a journalistic history and a critique of broad-based black economic empowerment. But it's, it's more than that. It, the book takes two-thirds of its copy, first plotting and setting up the political landscape of South Africa in the 70s and 80s, the role of capital and business in negotiations, a role which I think many people aren't very familiar with. Uh, why isn't that particular role of capital in negotiations spoken about a bit more, spoken about in the same breath as, say, Mandela meeting state security ministers yeah. while at Victor Vestey, or, or the first meetings yeah. between the ANC and MP about talks about talks. Why is this history not well known? That's a good question, Lester, and, and, and that's what I found fascinating while researching this. Um, you know, just to take a step back to, before I answer your question in, more clearly was, is that w when I wrote the Stellenbosch Mafia, th the biggest part of the book was about the so-called Stellenbosch uh, Mafia, the, those billionaires that live in Stellenbosch. But what I found fascinating researching that book, and I really didn't do too much of a good job uh, then doing it, but was researching the history of Afrikaner capital, how Afrikaner capital came to be in the 1930s, 40s, and later on, and, and the proximity of Afrikaner capital to the Nationalist Party, and, and what it did for, for Afrikaner business. And, and I found that fascinating. And, and, and researching the ANC billionaires, it quickly became clear to me that simply cannot write about this cohort of of super wealthy group of ANC-connected billionaires that emerged after 1994 without trying to understand how, how their wealth came about. And their wealth came about, I argue in the book, because of the intervention of big capital in the from the 70s, 80s, and 90s to try and A, protect their interest in a country 
riven by violence, institutional discrimination and racism, but which still produced a heck of a lot of return for their shareholders. So those companies were not about to let go of their investments in a deeply troubled country. And they wanted to to navigate the transition period that they saw was coming um, to try and protect their interests. But also it's a complicated story, Lester, because not only were they obviously focused on protecting their commercial interests, but they also saw if the country was going to survive that they needed to help create and shape a new black middle class. So it's a it's a fascinating story that, that runs parallel to the political negotiating process. And you're right, it has not really been investigated to such an extent previously. I found the role of Anglo-American, for example, fascinating. I found I found it very interesting that that organized business and big capital took a, an active approach to to try and and push the the negotiations period or the negotiations forward, you know, to propel it forward. So it is something that's been spoken about cursorily in the past. But what I tried to do is weave together a a readable story to try and explain that big capital certainly was not passive, that they played an active role. And uh, out of that flowed this group of super wealthy ANC connected businessmen. The irony, though, is not lost, uh, particularly big capital, particularly mining business, having this duality in the South African story. One, sensing the winds of change when it comes to a failing apartheid establishment, but at the same time being part of this mining industrial complex that actually sets the scene for the first economic segregation and then social and political segregation. The migrant worker system based, you know, on and migrant system essentially building this mining industrial complex of South Africa. Absolutely. You know, the TRC actually found in its final report that not only did the mining industrial complex benefit from cheap labor uh, from the Eastern Cape, black labor from the Eastern Cape. And if you read Charles von Onselin's book that also appeared at Jonathan Ball, The Night Trains, cheap labor from Mozambique. Not only did they they benefit from that, but they also actively helped write apartheid laws. They were closely in contact with the apartheid regime and government, and and they, they made significant inputs to try and shape the apartheid legal system of the era before 1994. But it is complex. Our country is enormously complex. So so you had, and I write this in the book, things in this country simply aren't black and white. So someone like Michael Spicer, who was an executive assistant to Gavin Reilly, who was Anglo-American's chief executive in 1985 when they visited the ANC, you know, these were people who grew up in apartheid South Africa. Obviously, they grew up with their, within a certain context and with certain prejudices. But they also saw, and, and this is what I try to explain as well, they also saw that this country was on a precipice or heading towards a precipice and things had to change. P.W. Boote was president uh, of, of apartheid South Africa, leader of the National Party. He's just He just had a stroke and he simply refused to engage with the ANC. You know, if you, if you cast your mind back, Boote was very much initially thought to be a reformer. But in 1985, he stopped those reforms in its tracks. Uh, and really, Anglo-American and a couple of other businessmen Yes, motivated by enlightened self-interest, as they explained it to me, but they did see that something needed to change um, and that the disenfranchised majority in the country needed to have a say, not only in politics, but in the economy as well.
Peter, I, 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 firstly, I appreciate your contributions to the Stein Ice documentary. I really, really enjoyed it. I've also, with your knowledge and your previous writings on on the Stellenbosch mafia, is is there any way to re- to 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 reason why it's largely white English speaking? organized big capital mm. that makes this first intimation to the ANC, um, largely with links to the Progressive and the United Party, the, the then opposition yeah. for the for the NP in, in Parliament. Why is it English business that, that makes these first intimations? Uh, great question. Um, as, as with many things, there's, there's no clear-cut answer. Anton Rupert, who was the eminent, preeminent Afrikaner uh, capitalist of his time, he was the CEO of the Rembrandt Corporation, which is the forerunner of today's Rembro, um, was very close to Harry Oppenheimer. But both Harry Oppenheimer and, and, and Anton Rupert were not keen to go to Lusaka with uh, Gavin Reilly from Anglo to go and meet the ANC. In fact, Harry Oppenheimer tried to dissuade his successor, Gavin Reilly, from going. Reilly did extend an invitation to Anton Rupert to either go with the group to Lusaka or to send a representative, uh, but Anton Rupert declined. I don't know why. I tried to to get some answers about specifically uh, Anton Rupert's approach to that period to the apartheid government at that time when I researched my previous book I did not get satisfactory answers from from Johann Rupert his son but the Ruperts and and Rembrandt as the company was called did get involved in a number of other initiatives to try and alleviate the impact of of apartheid the most significant of those initiatives was something called the urban foundation established alongside harry oppenheimer's anglo where they whether it was an organization that tried to buy a property in cities which they then transferred to black south africans because black south africans of course could not own property in the city so that was an organization that that said and it was initially it was under the chairmanship of a former judge judge jan stein um, and they said that presence of urban blacks in the country uh, is something that the apartheid government needs to deal with and then they at uh, you know motivated by their private initiatives they tried to incorporate black people on the fringes of society as far as possible but but it's a good question um, i think afrikaner capital was obviously close to the national party and business historically listed whether it's english capital or white afrikaner capital has always been reluctant to challenge the government of the day we saw it before 1994 we saw it after 1994 i think it was in 2007 there or thereabouts when fnb launched a massive campaign around crime, crime awareness. Esa Pahad, who was Thabo Mbeki's right-hand man, marched into FNB's offices uh, at Bank City in uh, in the center of Joburg and accosted the FNB management who promptly removed that ad campaign. So business historically has been very reluctant to stick its neck out. But I would argue that the decision in 1985 by Anglo's leadership to go out of the country, to go to see the ANC in Lusaka was quite a significant one. I know this book is not necessarily about the the history of the ANC, but reflects quite in depth on on ANC economic policy or, or, or lack thereof as it yeah. moves from this transition from being um, a, a struggle movement to, to a government in waiting and then mm. a, a government. Um, but we mentioned the ANC's historic mission, whether it be the defiance campaign, the armed struggle, the fulfillment of the freedom charter. But yeah. I think we generally forget that the ANC of 1912 uh, w- was a formation of of black business people, teachers, doctors, clergy, pro- professionals um, that were 
largely campaigning for a seat at the economic table of the time. When does the ANC change from that of 1912 black business professional elite to becoming a political formation that needs to represent primarily the aspirations of millions and millions of poor black people. That is largely connected to then what we see coming about in the 1980s when the ANC needs to decide, okay, what are we, not as a political formation, but also a government in waiting that that needs to be ready Mm. to govern and needs to have cogent economic policies. So I don't I don't know whether the ANC have ever made that transition to to being a mass-based organization actually listed and I suppose that's a that's a long conversation for another day but but you're right the ANC was established as a as quite an upper class organization in 1912 I mean it, it was founded by black professionals members of the upper black middle class that in the early part of the 20th century was was pretty tiny so I mean, if you look at its its first couple of lead, some of its major leaders, Albert Latuli, Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, uh, Walter Sisulu, you know, they were all educated members of Black society, often members of royalty and of the upper strata of the Black resistance movement. And when they resorted, I think, to the the armed struggle in the 1960s, you know, it was on the back of a pretty intransigent apartheid, uh, a series of apartheid governments. Um, Lutuli, uh, Susulu, Tambo, Mandela, everyone wrote to Verwurt Foster and their successors to try and open up channels of negotiation. And that was just simply flatly ignored. I mean, there was never even an acknowledgement of the ANC's overtures to especially the governments of Dev Malan and Hendrik Verwurt. Um, so they were forced into the armed struggle because of the prevailing conditions and the situation. Then, of course, they were forced into exile. And in exile, the overriding motivation for the ANC was the political overthrow of the apartheid state. It was not to try and craft a post-apartheid economic policy or a post-apartheid economic dispensation. And, of course, during the ANC's exile years between 1960 and 1990, a period of 30 years, which which spanned the, the presidencies of John F. Kennedy, for example, the rise and fall of Khrushchev in, in the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, the world changed a heck of a lot. But the ANC were supported in their resistance struggles by Soviet and communist-leaning countries, socialist countries, because those countries were involved in a Cold War with the West. So, of course, the ANC became very sympathetic to socialist and communist economic ideas. And that's what they came back with. When the ANC was unbanned in February 1990, they were still clinging on to the tenets of the 1955 Freedom Charter, which, in uh, according to, to socialist interpretation, means the nationalization of everything. And, and Mandela, in fact, said that when he returned, when he emerged from prison, you know, we adhere to the Freedom Charter, and that means the nationalization of the commanding heights of the economy, which, of course, scared big capital uh, no end. The 1980s then comes very quickly. In 1989, the fall of the, uh, the Iron Curtain and, uh, and of, of the Berlin Wall comes very, very quickly. Leaders like Taubenbeke, 
get Western education, the masters yes. in, in economics from Sussex University. I remember Tito Mbuweni once waxing lyrical <laughs> of of how yes. he and people like uh, Maria Ramos were were sent out in the world, deployed by the ANC to go study economics, so that when they return, they can be ready uh, to govern. This doesn't necessarily bleed into still an ambivalent economic policy at this transition in South Africa, or does it? Yeah, look, um, they, they, no, they were not ambivalent about the economic policy, um, but it was, it was very thin, Lester. They, they did not have um, clear policy positions about how um, uh, South Africa's economy should look once they, as they planned, take over government. Look, in, in 89-90, it was pretty uncertain still whether or not the ANC would eventually form a government. The National Party government under F.W. de Klerk, who became president in September 1989, still had control of, of a very strong and organized uh, defense force and police force, and like we now know, covert uh, covert, op- covert operators that fomented uh, violence, in, especially on the East-West Rand and, and KwaZulu-Natal. So, so they, they, there was an iron grip that the National Party government still had. And I write in the book, Tienz Ilof, who was was a significant player during the negotiations period and uh, a sig- significant player on, on big capital side in, in, in trying to corral big capital into one formation, said that if they wanted to hold out, they could have done so for six, seven, eight, nine years or more because of their strong command of the armed forces. So it wasn't clear cut that the ANC was going to form a government, even though that was the way in which things obviously turned out. But the ANC did not have any clear economic positions. They did not have clear economic policies. And I quote Trevor Manuel, which I which I interviewed extensively for the book, where he said that the ANC came back from Lusaka and they simply did not come back with truckloads full of filing cabinets with economic policy ideas. In fact, economic policy was as, as limited as it was in 1990, was largely driven by a group of leftist economics, ANC-aligned econ- economists, rather, uh, who were, were living in London. So it was murky, and they came up against a well-organized group, big capitalist companies in South Africa, under the leadership of Anglo-American, and obviously up against the National Party's Department of Finance, that was, uh, that was one of the stronger organized departments in the, in the, in the government back then. You talk about returning from Lusaka. At uh, the early 1990s, Sarafina is on stage and on screen. Uh, freedom is coming tomorrow. Exiles are returning. There's a fight with the ANC and NP and IFP. Uh, there's there's also a fight between ANC exiles and exiles, people who return with families with literally the clothes on the back. How is this setting the stage for what we now experience as this era of of patronage yeah. within the ANC. Well, look, uh, 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 Lester, to to research a book is absolute hell. It's it's even worse to write it. But but to go back into history is absolutely fascinating. And and to interview people who were there, who experienced returning from exile into a country that was that was largely unrecognizable from the country they left when they went into exile was. Was for me absolutely fascinating. So exiles came back. You know, they came back to Johannesburg, which grew by leaps and bounds during apartheid capitalism, which was part of the global economic system. You know, the JSE was one of the biggest bosses in the world, trading 
billions of rands every day. It was a completely alien environment to almost everyone returning. Well, not almost everyone returning from exile, including Tabu Mbeki, including Jacob Zuma, including Tito Mbuweni. They came back from overseas and they, they came back to a country that they did not recognize. And they came back to Johannesburg, for example, where the costs of living uh, like today was soaring. And the ANC decreed that every returning exile would be given 2,000 rands a month for, for living expenses. Now, even back then, 2,000 rands was nothing. And, and many of these cadres returning from overseas, you know, became susceptible to the overtures from big capital, became susceptible to the overtures from people who wanted to buy them, who wanted to co-opt them. I interview Jürgen Kugel, who is who these days works as Lindiwe Sisulu's political advisor, who was a who was a fixer between big business uh, and the ANC in the early 1990s, um, who in fact bought Jacob Zuma his first new flat in Morningside, Johannesburg, who offered, and it was gleefully accepted by Tabu Mbeki, his uh, penthouse flat in Hillbrow for the first couple of months when they when they returned to South Africa. So, so a lot of white businessmen, big representatives of big capital, capital reached out to returning exiles offered them jobs, offered them salaries, even though they didn't expect much, simply to get them into the system and obviously to curry favor. And that system includes capital saying, gosh, a, a growing middle class, black middle class definitely helps South Africa, but getting one or two high profile shareholders on our board makes us very, very favorable with the South African government and investors. It could be very, very good for business. Yes, of course. A lot of these exiles, and I'm not talking about someone like Tabo Mbeki, who had a very clear mandate, who was parachuted into the country um, with enough resources. But a lot of the cadres that, that returned were open to these overtures, as I said a moment ago, from Big Capital. And Big Capital took those gaps, you know. So, so companies offered uh, returning exiles jobs, gave them salaries, clothing, helped them find accommodation in the hope of obviously securing a line of communication to the new political elite. By the early 90s, it, it started, you know, business obviously hedged its bets on both sides. Michael Spicer, who was a senior executive at Anglo-American at the time, tells me in the book that, yes, we expended a vast amount of resources on this because we had to protect our interests uh, as well. Does that thing give credence, Peter, to the modern day, the contemporary critique that the ANC's negotiations with business pre-94 was so secretive and came with so many conditions that it is being used as what is often recall, called as uh, the selling out of the ANC. Is there credence to, to this contemporary statement, particularly amongst young black South Africans? I don't think so, Lester. I think what we tend to forget is the or are the conditions under which these negotiations, these overtures, these contacts between specifically the ANC and big business occurred in the late 80s and early 1990s. Our economy was in absolute dire straits. The debt to GDP ratio was, was, was at its highest ever. Growth had slowed to an almost standstill. It was also a period in which globalization was, was really starting to pick up pace. The technological advances that we saw across the globe was happening very rapidly. And South Africa was part of a global system, a global economic system. You know, any prospective new government couldn't just uh, implement 
some of the fantasy policies uh some of the fantasy policies that they adhere to in the 1960s you know there was a global system uh rules based financial system to which countries had to adhere to and if if south africa wanted to invite foreign direct investment if it wanted to secure enough to investment to try and and a get the economy moving again to try and create employment to try and narrow the wealth gap to try and bring unemployment down it had to play by by the international rules based order so big capital explained to the anc that this is how the new world looks it's not the world of 1955 or 1965 or even 1975 anymore. And if if you as the ANC government, and that was the message from Big Capital, wanted to be seen as a as an efficient modern economy, running an efficient modern economy, and if you want to lift your people out of poverty, you have to do A, B, and C. And this is just the reality of things. Mm. So I don't think there was uh look and 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 I and I interviewed Trevor Manuel in the book, Jay Naidu. Uh, Jeremy Cronin as well, some prominent people on on the ANC side during those times. And and Trevor Manuel is very adamant that the ANC did not want to be seen as as two-bit players, were his words, if I recall correctly. They wanted to be seen as a serious government. And if they wanted to be seen as a serious government, they had to make sure that they've got proper economic policies in place. Of course, uh, Jeremy Cronin and some others on the left, like Jay Naidu, uh, does not agree with that. And that's that's fair enough. The criticism is, um, you know, you, we can discuss the criticism, but I don't think there was a deal done in the dark. And, and that's the argument that I make in the book, thanks to a number of people that I, that I interviewed for the book. But I don't think there was a, a, a deal in the dark. I think that the ANC, by and large, was unprepared for what was coming after 94, that there was a period where we had serious people running the economy, like Trevor Manuel, Tabo and Becky to, to, uh, to an extent, but that that period quickly came crashing down in 2007, and uh, and here we are today. And, and, and that um, policy ambivalence and debate continues within the ANC today, whether you continue with... Uh, um, prudence and austerity yeah. and versus yeah. radical economic uh, transformation or that grouping within the ANC, that debate still continues. Look, with, 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 the, with the principle of broad-based black economic empowerment, the, the principle of it is, was there to, to benefit and provide access for particularly um, black business, emerging black business, providing the footing for a, a growth of a black middle class, but but even, admittedly, even with many within the ANC, the president himself, ironically, or anything, uh, did create this ultra-elite, while the vast majority of this country, black mm. majority, still 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 languishes. But, but you focus mm. on four individuals and we won't go into each one in depth in this mm-hmm. conversation but 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 four characters Tokyo Sequali, Saki Makazoma, Patrice Mutsepe and Cyril Ramaphosa uh, yeah. himself why are they the figures for you of B <laughs> look it, it it could have been four others as well but obviously they are the most prominent simply because they've got a high public profile i'm sure that they are um more wealthier black businessmen out there but those four certainly were the recipients of some of the biggest empowerment deals post-1994 now the empowerment environment was something that was created by big capital big capital said look this is how we're going to do it a we need to create a black middle class because we need to give 
black South Africans, previously disenfranchised South Africans, a stake in the economy. Um, but then they needed they they needed partners, Lester. They they needed some. They needed a a couple of cherry picked partners, which which they could. You know, I'm, I'm using the word co-opt very selectively, but that they can bring into the fold and into the environment to give them, and as Michael Spicer said, and he admits it was rather condescendingly said, to give them experience of making big money decisions. And in 2004, those four gentlemen became the recipients of some of the biggest empowerment deals in the country. Uh, Toki Sikhwale, his consortium became the preferred empowerment partner for ABSA, which was a couple of billion rand. Saki Makuzoma and Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, in a joint venture, their joint venture became the preferred BEE partner of Standard Bank. They owned a large chunk of Standard Bank. That was a couple of billion uh, South African rants. Uh, and then Patrice Motsepe became the preferred empowerment partner of Sunlum, you know, the 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 the, uh, the big Afrikaner empowerment vehicle from the from the 1920s, 1910s and 1920s, which was which was quite ironic. So so those four gentlemen had quite a meteoric rise. Uh, out of those, I would argue that uh, that Patrice Motsepe is the most accomplished businessman of them all, that Saki Makuzoma is the most respected technocratic business leader of them all. You know, and someone like our president was someone that really did score of the largesse of a number of countries and uh you know today is a very very wealthy man what this book is about is how politics is connected to money and money to politics and and very rich people not just here in south africa but worldwide feel that um, money often equates to being in governance Cyril ramaphosa is currently the anc president and our national state president Tokyo Sekwale has uh, wanted to be president um, I see and hear very little in active politics of Saki Makazoma but I want you to look into a, a crystal ball and we ask the question should we expect a, a Patrice Mutsepe standing for candidacy in, in future whether it be as part of the ANC or, or even outside we don't know what 2024 and and, and Beyond may hold for the ANC and, and this country, but many extremely rich men feel that um, money and access gives them access to political power as well. Like a, like a Donald Trump, Lester. Well, you said it. <laughs> Look, I don't know. Um, uh, Patrice Motsepe is someone that that spends, expends a vast amount of his ample fortune on phil- philanthropy. Philanthropy and philanthropic projects. He's got a massive charitable trust which him and his wife runs. I think they've poured about half of their wealth into that trust. They they do a lot of work um, uh, awarding bursaries, helping mid-sized businesses, helping schools, and various other development projects. So his heart, I would argue, is in the right place. He has certainly has demonstrable social conscience. So if that's to go anything to go by it might be i don't know i doubt it he's an extraordinarily successful businessman with close ties to sunlam his uh, african rainbow capital investment company is staffed by former senior sunlam executives that is doing extraordinarily well so i think he's quite happily ensconced in the world of big capital now if if he ever runs for for higher office i think it would be when the anc eventually you know they are going to implode or you know uh, lose power within the next 
six to seven years, I would argue. It it, it might happen after that, but not now. He's clo- too closely aligned uh, to Sir Ramaphosa, who incidentally is his brother-in-law. Let, let's wrap let's wrap up with with the question about Sir Ramaphosa. More and more growing voices, particularly amongst young Black South Africans, that. Triple B has not been a beneficial to the vast majority yeah. of South Africa. It's a it's a government who wants to restore its credibility away from the negative perceptions of patronage and and corruption. The irony, of course, would be if under a a president Ramaphosa, this government changes its or, or readapts its its position on Triple B E, seeing that it is a, a as you said, a Cyril Ramaphosa, one of being being one of those figureheads to largely have benefited from Triple B E E. Not mm. seeing any change in at least the next what five six years. Yeah, Lester, uh, uh, a turkey doesn't vote for Christmas. Eh? It's not going to happen. B E has been a system that has enriched uh, a very uh, limited group of ANC connected. Uh, businessmen. Um, it's been very profitable for a very narrow band of people. Uh, it's not extended to being uh, advantageous to a broad section of, of, of the still excluded black majority. Um, I don't see it changing because uh, uh, the the governing political elite, it's it's too important to them. We, we've seen over the last decade or more how state capture, um, how BE and state capture has intertwined, how it's become um, very closely related and interlinked, and those networks are still very much in operation. I don't see the regime changing soon, um, even though many in the book uh, that I interviewed for the book said that it's it's become untenable. Um, someone like Sake Makazoma said, look, it, 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 it must change in future, but it's not going to change now, because there still is enormous levels of inequality, Lester, like we know, there's still, there still are enormous levels of unemployment. That needs to be addressed, but this government certainly does not have the ability to change course to import new dynamic and creative policies and it has lost the implementation power of the state due to dysfunction and corruption so i don't see it changing peter detoy the anc billionaires really appreciate this conversation thanks so much for joining me